This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. And this time, the roles may be slightly reversed as I welcome in a longtime colleague of mine who's worked with us at ESPN Tennis for many years. And before that, she hosted Sports Center for many years, in addition to plenty of other assignments. The one and only Chris McKendry. How are you holding up during these crazy times, Chris? We're doing fine. I mean, our, our worst thing right now is a little bit of boredom, been lifted a bit with the better weather, but uh, we've been healthy and, you know, looking forward to maybe getting some sense of normalcy back with schools and hopefully our fingers still cross the U.S. Open. Yeah, we are, we are certainly all hoping for that. You and I have been on uh, quite a few conference Zoom calls over the last uh, month or so with our other colleagues at ESPN and our bosses there as well. So I would say it, it, it sort of started out initially about six weeks ago, Chris. I thought we were looking pretty good, about 60-40. Uh, then it started to turn the other direction to where it was mm, maybe not looking so good as cases started to rise in other parts of the country and as the logistics of, I think, the most difficult thing for tennis is bringing the players in mm-hmm. from all different parts of the world. But it seems like it's starting to turn a little more in the positive direction that this U.S. Open could happen, of course, without fans. Is that your take on it? That is my take. It's a Herculean effort. It truly is. On the one hand, you think of all the sports and tennis is the most likely, you would say, to return to players opposite ends of the court, um, you know, put all the precautions in place. It's not a contact sport, but it's getting players country to country, getting the countries to cooperate, lifting quarantines, random rapid testing, um, all of those sorts of things going into it. But you know, we're starting to feel very positive about it. So I, I, I hope we can pull it off. I really do. Yeah, I think it would be great, great for the sport. And I think uh, we got to give the USTA a little credit. We had Stacey Allister as the tournament director now of the U.S. Open. She ran the, <clears throat> excuse me, the WTA tour for many, many years and very mm-hmm. well respected. She joined our call last week. And uh, I think as she said, and correctly so, part of the mission of the USTA is to grow the game and support the game. And I think they feel like even though they, as an, as an enterprise, are certainly not going to make nearly the money they usually make at the U.S. Open. They're still going to make some, most of it from our bosses at our company at ESPN. <laughs> but I still, think, I still think they're trying to do it for the right reasons, you know, to bring tennis back, to showcase the sport. As you said, it's an easy sport to social distance. I've seen that just in my own um, teaching, Chris, in the last couple of months. I've been teaching more lessons than I ever have in the past. But obviously all the other issues, coming into play, where the players stay, how they get to the site and, and, and back and forth, right. and then how they get back to their own countries or back to the big European uh, cities after the U.S. Open seems to be a hurdle that they've been able to overcome recently. Yes, I agree. I, I think you're right. I mean, USTA knows this is not going to be the financial bonanza they usually receive, but it does support everybody. If you remember, the U.S. Open supports all of the tennis you know, throughout our country for the most part, all the grassroots. And so I just think of some of the programs that would be affected if it completely fell apart. And I'm so glad they're trying to do everything they can. And same for us, Patrick. I mean, it's not going to be, um, you know, the spectacle and the production we're used to um, with all of the fans and, you know, the Fountain Plaza studio where thousands gather behind us and it's so much fun and there's so much energy. 
this would be an event without fans. So it will be unusual. It'll be something unlike anything we've ever done before. I, you know, I think about you and your brother and Chris Fowler and Darren Cahill courtside and, you know, our real A team going out there for the guys' matches. And I'm wondering, how are the guys playing not going to hear everything you're saying? You know, so <laughs> right. there's, there's a lot of different elements that, you know, tune in and watch because we really are unsure how this will all unfold. I mean, we're, we're all learning how to do this you know, under, under fire, so to speak. But I, I hope it happens and I think it'll be fun. And Lord knows our crew tries to make everything fun. Yeah, we really well, do. We do. And that's what and we I have, look forward to. Yeah. We have a great time together. And as you said, it'll be a lot different this year, but let's uh, fingers crossed that it'll happen. Have you been, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you have been, cause I know you pay attention to the other sports. You did the little league world series for many years and just, I know yeah. you're, you're about your own interest in sports. So have you been watching some of the baseball and some of the other sports that have started to get back um, into, into uh, the, the competitive environment? Yeah. Yes, I have, and, and the WNBA and what they've done there at IMG Academies, you know, with side-by-side courts, it reminds me of an AAU tournament, you know, going on right. with how they've put um, their bubble together. The NBA bubble seems to be working. Um, baseball's a concern. You know, they're not bubbling, and they're seeing a rise in cases. Um, so, so that's a concern. I'm very glad the U.S. Open is going with the model of you bubble the players and it's not ideal for them. They, of course, love to come to the U.S. and go out in New York City and experience everything it has to offer. But, you know, that's not the case this year. It's not the responsible thing to do. So I am watching the other sports come back. And, it, you know, I couldn't wait. You know, I was watching, you know, opening night baseball. That was so exciting. Mm. And um, the WNBA game that was on like Saturday morning at 11 a.m. or <laughs> whenever it might be. I was definitely tuning into events unlike I have in the past um, just because I miss them. I miss them a lot. Um, and, and I want to see these sports um, continue to grow. And, you know, it's, it's just good that sense of normalcy. I mean, sports are so important, you know, as, as everybody found out, we always knew it. But, you know, sports is something that's kind of irreplaceable for the fan and for the passionate um, sports fan in our country. they part of our fabric. Um, and then from watching a production standpoint, watching games that have gone without the piped in fake fan noise and the ones that have gone with the fake fan noise, you know, so that's caught my attention. And, you know, some of the little production things that I'd be mindful of as a broadcaster, but I've been watching a lot. I'm, I'm kind of hoping, Chris, that we get a little bit of both in our production. I know our team is, is looking into that and working on that as far as some of the piped-in sound. I've, I've also, in addition to watching the baseball and the, and the basketball, I've tuned into the World Team Tennis coverage. That's some of it been mm-hmm. on ESPN and other uh, networks, tennis channel as well, and, and some of the UTS series at Patrick Mortagalu, who also works with us from time to time. Serena Williams' coach is put together over in France. Yeah. So it's kind of a nice, I think, a mix between, you know, you see what's going on at World Team Tennis where there's not fans over at UTS in Europe. You know, there are some fans. And, of course, the European, the big European events, um, which will happen right. just after the U.S. Open, at least the plan right now, Chris, is to have a decent amount, maybe about half the normal fans in attendance. Do you think that will happen? I know. Well, it's, I have no idea. I think it seems aggressive to go mm. with 50% fans in France. I mean, they're still seeing, you know, hot pockets throughout Europe of, of the, uh, the virus. You know, compare that to Australia, looking ahead to next January, has already said 
best case scenario, we'll only go with, you know, a 50% capacity, most likely only Australian fans. We're not opening our borders to international fans. So, and Australia has been extremely responsible in how they've handled, you know, outbreaks. So I'm like, wow, they're saying as of January, we're only going 50%. And some of the European tour stops are saying as of next month, we're going Mm. 50%. So, you know, it, it does seem a little aggressive in that, in that regard, but we'll have to wait and see what they decide they can safely do. I have liked some of the innovation. I, I like, um, and Patrick's tour stop, you know, or tournament, how the players are putting on headsets and they're interacting with broadcasters, um, in the middle of their, of their match, like after a set, or I, I think some of those innovations, um, you know, I hope players get more and more comfortable with them and realize, oh, well, this is not going to be the reason why I've won or lost a match mm. because I flipped on a headset and said my, my serve is feeling great or, you know, um, I'm noticing something out here on the court. Right. So, I mean, wouldn't that be great if we could get a little more of that involved? So maybe oh, there's yeah. a silver lining here. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> let's hope the players get the memo and, and yeah. do that. But I'm not, I'm not always that optimistic about that because uh, – I, you know, now that I've been in broadcasting for so long, 25 plus years, mo- most of them with ESPN, uh, I, I, I sort of look at it from, from a non-player perspective, even though I was obviously a player for many years and, and right. can certainly relate as being the you know, Davis Cup captain and working at Labor Cup with my brother as to what the players um, want. Uh, I think that uh, the players run the show a bit too much in tennis, you know, just overall. I think they carry too much power. Yeah. And part of that is a splintered nature of, of, of the people who run the game, you know, administratively, whether it's the USTA, whether it's the French Federation, the ITF, the ATP, the WTA. Right. So there's no real one uh, entity that can sort of maybe dictate is too strong a word, but negotiate and then put out some rules and regulations like I think they can do in the NBA and, and certain leagues where they, you know, they bargain with the other side and they say, okay, you know, the commissioner says, this is what right. we're going to do. And that to me has always been a big right. challenge. Now, from your standpoint, because I always actually, I, I really listen sometimes even more to people like you because you, you love tennis, you're interested in tennis, but you bring a slightly different uh, focus in it because you cover all sports. You know, you're not just a tennis person. Right. Well, we're going to get into that too, by the way, Ms. <laughs> McKendry, about your own yeah. tennis playing because I know <laughs> that's something I want to talk about. But just from the standpoint of, you know, you've covered all sports, right. how do you feel that right. tennis handles these issues now that you've been involved with us for so long? Um, it, it's, it's extremely tricky, you know, and, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, even just look at the French Open. I mean, it was turning into the Hunger Games with these tournaments just grabbing, uh, you know, real estate on the calendar and declaring, this is when our tournament will be. Right. Well, this is, we're holding our ground here at the U.S. Open. Don't anyone take early September. And then Labor Cup, which has been one of the more successful new events on the tennis calendar, extremely popular. They were going to take it to Boston this year was, you know, kind of the odd man out. And I mean, as things worked out for Roger Federer, you know, he, you know, graciously bailed out of the, you know, out of the calendar and said, okay, this isn't the right year. We'll do it again next year. And, um, you know, but that, that was crazy. I mean, to me, I I couldn't believe it. You know what I, I see in other sports and we even saw it with the restart at the NBA where they were like, okay, not every team, not every you know, not everybody's going back to work. This is the calendar that works for us. This is the postseason that works for us. You know, they, that's just it. There's a players' association. There's the league, 
of owner. There's a commissioner, mm. you know, managing it in between. They hash things out. But when there's something agreed upon, everyone falls in line for the betterment of the sport. Right. Right. And they and they proceed. And it's like, OK, you're going to have your differences. I've seen it over the years. You know, great distrust sometimes grows between the two sides. If one side felt they, you know, didn't get the upper hand the last negotiation, you see it play out. But at once a decision is made, everyone moves forward. And, you know, tennis doesn't have that. You have two different tours. You have grand slams that act independently of one another, end of the tours. So it's just tricky. Sometimes it feels like herding cats, trying to get a, a strong opinion one way or the other. Um, you know, I thought it was very interesting when, again, Roger Federer didn't propose it, but early in the spring, when he brought it up once again, something the great Billie Jean King wanted to do going back to the 70s, and you look at the financial hit both tours are taking throughout COVID, is this the time? I mean, there's greater strength in numbers mm. if the tours start working together as one. I don't mean travel everywhere all over the world together. Not every tournament's going to become Indian Wells or Miami or Grand Slam. You know, we're both tours are competing at the same spot, but as far as negotiations go, as far as um, setting standards for players or whatever it might be, uh, fees, you know, tournament fees or rights fees and, you know, broadcast fees, whatever it might be, you know, are they not stronger together? Um, you know, I, I think this is a very good time to start really considering that. Well, tennis is one of the luckiest sports. I mean, in that uh, the men and women really do, for the most part, play on equal footing. And, uh, you know, women yeah. women tennis players are the wealthiest female athletes on the planet by far. Maybe a couple of golfers here and there, but for the most part, um, they they right. can make the most money partly because the men and women play together. Now, the men have had issues with that over the past because they feel like, well, maybe you know we we bring in more sponsorship, we bring in more revenue. But I think in the long run, it, you're correct. The, the, the best events, the most successful events, and the events with the most prize money for the players are the Grand Slams, the mm -hmm. majors, and, of course, as you said, the Indian Wellses and the Miamis of the world. All right, now, I promised you we we're yeah. going to go here, okay, because okay. I know that you played tennis, but I, I didn't really realize that you were like a pretty – I mean, I mean, big time might be too strong of a word, but you were – I mean, you were a D, D1 player – Okay, at Drexel, you grew up in the Philly area, I know that. Now, tell me yes. just about how Chris McKendry got involved in tennis yes. and a little bit about your own playing career, because this is, is fascinating to me, because you you never sort of made that public with our team, or at least I wasn't aware of it. So please explain. Right. Yes. Um, well, I always like to, you know, I mean, just be humble about it. How could I not be, you know, surrounded by the the likes of all of you. Chris right? Everett so and Pam Shriver. Right. Exactly. And I'm not going to, I mean, I'm a very proud Drexel Dragon, but when you're sitting next to, you know, Grand Slam titles on top of Grand Slam titles, you're not going to say, hey, <laughs> look at me. But I always like to, it's just assume, and, and sometimes it just is over time. But clearly, I like to think the way we're able to converse about the sport, that there's a background there, right? And, and that to me is what sets a broadcaster apart is, you don't sit out there with your credentials. That's for all of you to have. But if you're good at your job, there's clearly a lot of knowledge behind the conversation. So that's been the greatest gift tennis has ever given me. Frankly, um, not just my education, but the fact that I understand the sport 
and it put me in a position to have this incredible job that I love so much. Um, and I've been able to grow with it. I've only gotten smarter uh, as a player and smarter as a, as a host by being surrounded by all of you. But tennis was not always my top sport, my favorite sport. I grew up at a different time. As you know, in the 80s, we, we could play a lot of sports. So that's what I did. I played soccer in high school, all fall. I think I finished high school with about 13 varsity letters. Wow. So I played soccer all fall, and I played basketball in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, I played tennis in the spring. And growing up, I was introduced to tennis by my parents, and then we moved into uh, Philadelphia proper, you know, the, within the city limits. Mm-hmm. And I liked tennis. I mean, I liked sports. And I had three brothers who played a lot of sports, so... Um, I naturally just always played sports, not just watched, but participated. Mm -hmm. And um, when we moved into Philadelphia, you know, there were tennis courts there at the uh, the public park. And I started seeing kids go throughout the week in the summer dressed in the same bright colored T-shirt to play team tennis. Mm. And I I really got interested because then tennis became a team sport. I loved mm. team sports. I loved playing soccer and softball and all of these team sports available to young girls. And so I started playing uh, junior team tennis all summer long and then would play in the spring. Um, I then never had the opportunity to play indoor winter tennis mm-hmm. that would have clearly advanced the game until the great Arthur Ashe, uh, his youth tennis center opened when I was in high school in the Maniunk section of Philadelphia. In Philly, yeah, it's a great, great program there, Legacy, yep. Been around a, for a while. It's yeah. a great program, it is. And uh, when I was playing, um, it wasn't the school component yet with the tennis. It was really an opportunity. And the first place they went um, looking and offering opportunities were to some of the kids who had, you know, progressed and had done really well throughout the summers of mm-hmm. playing, you know, Junior in the team junior tennis. team tennis, right? So, right. So the one of the coaches that was at the playground just said, "Here's an opportunity. You should go down and, and hit for them, and just you know maybe you can play and start playing in the winter." And this was early parts of high school years. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, long story. I suffered a, a I broke my leg playing soccer. Oh my goodness! <laughs> as a sophomore, wow. And it kind of took out contact sports for me. Right. But this opportunity with playing indoor tennis. Um, you know, I was chosen to play in the winter program and would go down and hit. And it was during um, a college showcase. You know, that was another mm-hmm. great thing. They were spectacular about getting the college coaches to come to mm. the tennis center and see their kids hit, you know, see their kids play some matches. Um, and it was during one of those college showcases that, um, you know, a couple of coaches came up and introduced themselves because I, frankly, I only played a handful of tournaments. I mean, I wasn't. You weren't you know, like my, you weren't a, you weren't a, you weren't a regular like USTA competitive player. No, no, no. And 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 my actually my one of my best friends, my college roommate for years, she always played. She went into Drexel, played number one, but she was also ranked number one in middle state mm-hmm. her entire you know twelve and under, sixteen under, the whole bit. Um, but anyway, I ended up choosing Drexel, and you know I think the coach saw more an athlete that she could work with, and I saw an opportunity to continue playing a sport in college. And, um, you know, so it's not my tennis history. My tennis career is not one of, you know, great accolades like all of you, but, you know, Patrick, I think it's actually more applicable to so many of the young women who are out there playing. And that is, you know, you can still have a great college opportunity. Mm -hmm. And thanks to 
the wonderful Billie Jean King and Title IX and right. equal opportunity she fought for, there's a lot of opportunity in college sports for women. And oh. it's opportunity to advance your education, to maybe get into that school or to afford a school that possibly wasn't on your radar without the sport. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like. That's what I you know, tell a lot of young women. There's anything you could learn from my game or my career is, is there's opportunity. Just go find it. And it's, it's really thanks to, I always tell Billie Jean, you know, thank you, thank mm. you. And, you know, because she did. She didn't fight necessarily for the most elite athletes. I mean, yes, she did in forming the tour. But at the heart of what she was doing was fighting for the everyday athlete. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, and also getting getting girls and boys, men and women playing together, which is why, you know, yeah, and hearing you play team tennis, uh, you know, that's inspiring because I think we lose a lot of kids that get into too much the individual competition in tennis, and like you said, most kids, including yours truly, and even my brother, we played team sports all the way through our junior tennis career, all the way through high school. We played on the soccer team and and baseball and so on. And I think tennis loses some kids, but I have to tell you, Chris, that I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, forgive me for this, but I'm thinking about, Oh, what could have been for Chris McKendry? Cause here's this great young athlete playing all these sports. And, you know, you didn't start playing tennis like really all year until you were a sophomore junior in yeah. high school. So what, and then you played D one at Drexel. Amazing. Yeah. Isn't that silly? <laughs> um, yeah, but that, that's just the way it was. But, you, you know, you, you, I sometimes wonder, I mean, look at all the years playing soccer. What does that do for your footwork, right? Your endurance, your, right. um, you know, the, the cross between, and, you know, I never, I mean, I did suffer a broken leg and that was terrible, but that was on, on impact, you know, a bad mm. kick. But, um, you know, I never had back injuries. You know, I never had, you know, the overuse injuries that you see mm-hmm. in young athletes, a right. shoulder injury or a wrist, you know, a wrist injury. I mean, a rise in wrist injuries. Well, maybe because I didn't, you know, for, for one of the, the times during school, I'll fall long, I didn't hold anything in my hands. I was just running and kicking. You know? Right, you were doing something so, else, yeah. Right, you wonder, you wonder. But um, I, I never wonder what could have been because I just, I mean, I just feel so fortunate. It was just, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's a story of put yourself out there and see what happens. I was scared to death going down. I still remember it being like, really, I have to hit and play tennis. And, you know, here was these kids who you could always tell the kids who were tournament tough and mm-hmm. really knew how to play, you know. But, I mean, you just somehow you get over your nerves and then, you know, you go off to college. And, again, I you know, I was never, I mean, I play like five singles, mm-hmm. you know, and, and third doubles or – you know, so I was never going to be top of the, the ladder, but, you know, dependable and, you know, kept improving. I certainly hadn't peaked before I got to college, that's for sure. Um, and then that put me in the middle of Philadelphia where I started interning at TV stations just for, you know, I had time on my hands and at night and, and got hooked into one of the TV station sports departments. And, you know, that sent me on my way. So, you know, it was kind of like I, I was at the right place at the right time for about six consecutive years. That's how I felt. 
and it worked out. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you've been, you've been holding out for way too long telling me about this, and I'm glad finally to come on <laughs> Holding Court, the name of my podcast, we could get to the bottom of this. And I'm telling you now, Chris, whenever we get back together, yeah. if it's at, maybe not at the U.S. Open this year because, you know, we're not going to be allowed to play, but you and I are going to have right. to get out on the court, and I'm going to have to see this Chris McKendry game, okay, <laughs> because I need to see I need to see what you got. And now I'm intrigued. I don't have much. It's now, it's a very stiff game these days and age. But um, yeah, no, I actually play more golf than tennis right now. I should not admit that on your podcast, but, uh, That's okay. but I still would love to hit. You know, I was out um, visiting Chrissy once and we went out and, and we were hitting and, you know, we're having these long rallies and I'm feeling really great about everything. I'm like, wow, okay, I'm hanging in there. I'm getting her shots back. This is awesome. Okay, breathing, and finally she yells over to me. She goes, "Are you going to move?" And I realized <laughs> I was getting everything back because she was basically like target practice hitting hitting right to you. My right. every time. Exactly. That's 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 <laughs> that, we call we call that customer tennis, Chris. You got to play to the customer. <laughs> yes. So you were Chris Everett's customer. Not a bad yeah. place to be, I must say. Well, I, I must say as we as we wrap this up because you've been kind enough to give me this time in the middle of the summer and um you are one of the most pleasant people to work with. You have to deal with all these oh. e- egomaniacs and us in the tennis world and uh you have uh, just been an amazing partner for all of us and in, in, in setting the table for us and getting making us all feel so comfortable that we can say what we need to say and put our opinions out there. And I'm, I'm glad that finally I could get to hear a little bit more from you. Okay, and then a little role reversal on my podcast here. Well, I'm glad. Um, I'm happy to share my story. I hope it encourages you know other young women. Um, Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.